This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Recognizing the Lord in All Things. In the first half, Rex E. Lee shares his address, Overcoming in Gratitude. Then in the second half, Paris K. Egbert speaks on Confess the Lord's Hand in All Things. There is a story, uh, probably apocryphal, of an aging widow who eked out a meager living by selling soft pretzels on a busy street corner for 30 cents apiece. And each morning, a businessman passed her corner on his way to work. He had no taste for pretzels, but he wanted to help the person who sold them. So each morning, he would give her the 50 cents and simply not take a pretzel. One morning... After the man had performed the daily ritual and was walking away, the woman called him back. He said, I know what you want. You're wondering why it is that I never take my pretzel. She replied, I couldn't care less about that. That's your business. I just want you to know that the price has gone up 75 cents. In the mid-1970s, I was the head of the Civil Division of the United States Department of Justice. Together with about 300 other lawyers, we handled the broad range of civil lawsuits brought either by or more frequently against the United States. One of the issues with which we dealt during that time was the nationwide effort in the fall of 1976 to provide a vaccine against what most experts predicted and their predictions eventually turned out to be correct, would be a severe epidemic of swine flu that would affect the country during the ensuing winter. The government's medical experts predicted that millions would, in fact, benefit from the vaccine. But they also predicted that with virtual certainty, there would be a handful of people who would become quite ill, and some would even die, not from the flu, but from the vaccine. Some of these people, they also predicted, would certainly sue the government, and past experience indicated that the resulting judgments might be substantial in amount. And for these reasons, there was a large debate in which I participated within the government as to whether the predictable assistance to millions of people was justified in light of the large amounts the government might have to pay in damage judgments. During the course of one of those deliberations, I expressed to my governmental colleagues the following thought. This problem exists only because of the government's humanitarian effort to save possibly millions of its citizens from serious illness, and in some cases, death. The United States of America is under no obligation to supply this vaccine. And yet here we are anticipating an apparently predictable consequence in which some of the very people we are trying to help will then turn around and sue us because of our good Samaritan generosity. And then I asked the question that caused such amazement among the dozen or so other participants at that meeting. Wouldn't you think that someone in this fair land of ours Maybe even one who had an adverse reaction to the vaccination would say, you know, I really appreciate what the government is doing for me. Looking out for my health, 
and going to great and unrequired effort and expense to help me and many others cut down our chances of sickness or death. In short, I asked, shouldn't somebody be saying, thank you for doing your best, rather than, this better work or I'll see you in court. I'll never forget my colleagues' responses to those questions. They ranged from facial expressions reflecting unmistakable incredulity to verbal utterances, including such words as naivete, lack of sophistication, and the one I remember best. That's what you get when you take some kid from the Rocky Mountains and ask him to handle the government's litigation. The common feature of these two stories is, of course, gratitude. Or perhaps more accurately, lack of gratitude. And today I want to share some thoughts with you concerning why gratitude is so important, why it is so neglected among all members of society, and whether there are any positive steps that we can take to enhance our consciousness and our practice of this particular virtue. There can be no doubt that gratitude is one of the great human accomplishments and ingratitude one of the great human failings. Scriptures, both ancient and modern, are very clear on this subject. President Benson has stated it so well, and this is a quote. The crime of ingratitude is one of the most prevalent, and I might say at the same time one of the greatest, with which mankind is afflicted. That's the end of the quote from President Benson. Similarly, President Hinckley has observed that absence of gratitude is the mark of the narrow, uneducated mind. It bespeaks a lack of knowledge and the ignorance of self-sufficiency. The psalmist in the 100th Psalm put the basic proposition with characteristic simplicity and beauty. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. And in more modern times, the Lord revealed the same truth to Joseph Smith. And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious. In short, it is not open to any serious doubt that, as President Romney said about 11 years ago, the virtues of gratitude have been widely extolled and the sinfulness of ingratitude has been just as widely condemned, and I would add to that, and properly so. Let me tell you about two of our students from whom, over the past year, I've learned important lessons about gratitude. You'll recognize both of them. They're both members of our men's basketball team, John Fish and Sean Lindquist. In the past 15 months, neither of them has had quite as much playing time as he probably would have liked. And at different times over that period, I've asked each of them how he handled this challenge emotionally. And the responses I received were, in each case, a personal learning experience for me. What John told me just prior to the Maui Classic a year ago was, in essence, of course I'd like to be playing more, but I've concluded that if my role is to add depth and to provide playing minutes when the team needs me for that purpose, I'd rather do that as a member of a good basketball team, which this one certainly is. Sean's response just a couple of weeks ago was, I'm just grateful to be in a BYU uniform. 
and contributing when I can and what I can. When the team needs me, whether in practice or in a game, I'm there. What a wonderful lesson from two very talented basketball players whose reaction could have been one of resentment. Instead, it was one of gratitude. I see my friend Roger Reed sitting over there, and I'm sure he's grateful to them as they expressed gratitude for the circumstance under which they have a relationship with the team. The most common English phrase we use to express our gratitude is a simple thank you. I've long been fascinated by the fact that the Spanish word for thank you also has another quite separate meaning. Now, I suppose that most of you, I mean, this is just part of your, uh, you're not cultured if you don't know what the word, a Spanish word for, uh, for thank you is, it's gracias. Uh, but that word, gracias, is also the plural of the noun grace. And therefore, the word itself implies a full range of virtues and characteristics related to human decency and kindnesses, including courtesy, civility, and genuine concern for other people. Now, I know that the fact that the Spanish word that is used as the basic expression of gratitude is also a noun that embraces generally those qualities of civility and kindness is surely pure coincidence. But it is also a convenient, even if coincidental, reminder of the breadth of human virtues, the breadth of human virtues that we develop when we practice gratitude. But at the same time, gratitude also involves more than simple human kindness and courtesy. Righteousness itself is involved. In describing to Timothy the signs of human deterioration that would characterize the last days, Paul predicted that people would become unthankful and unholy, implying, I believe, that there is a direct linkage between unthankfulness on the one hand and unholiness on the other, and therefore between thankfulness and holiness. Well, the most important question is, of course, how can we progress from theory to practice, from these good ideas to doing it? How do we get ourselves beyond simply observing that gratitude is such a good thing and ingratitude such a bad thing? How do we move to the next step of actually doing something about it and adding gratitude to the list of virtues that we practice, in fact, and thereby making ourselves better total people, more thankful and therefore more holy. I think that it's the two steps are fairly simple. Part of the problem is simply one of recognition. That is, I don't think very many of us practice ingratitude as a deliberate vice as one might offend either the word of wisdom or principles of sexual morality because he or she chooses to do so for pleasure. Rather, it is simply that we overlook and bypass positive opportunities to practice gratitude as an affirmative and consistent part of what we are. My favorite example of ingratitude 
and one which demonstrates that inadvertence is probably one of its root causes, involves the ten lepers whom the Savior healed. Luke reports, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And you all know the significance of that fact. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. You know something? I think that report by Luke, one leper out of ten who even bothered to come back and say thank you, may be a fair statistical measure of what we might call the Human Gratitude Index, not only 2,000 years ago, but today as well. Indeed, in today's world, I would guess that 10% would probably be an overly optimistic estimate. I believe that the first hurdle, therefore, is to conquer simple inadvertence. We're just not as aware as we ought to be. We need to make a conscious effort, because there are people for whom we should be grateful, and opportunities that are all around us to express that gratitude. A simple awareness of those people in those circumstances will not come easily or naturally, as the story of the Ten Lepers illustrates. But we can work at it, and like all worthwhile things, we will be happier and better people if we will make that effort. Conquering inadvertence, that is to say, making ourselves more aware of the problem, is not the complete solution, however, to overcoming ingratitude. It gets us partway there by bringing us to an inward consciousness of the debt of gratitude we owe to others. But there is, I believe, also another element. Gratitude must be not only felt inwardly, but also expressed outwardly. And for most of us, for some unexplainable reason, even those of us who express ourselves rather liberally on most subjects, expressing ourselves on this one is uncommonly difficult. And this reality was illustrated very well by my colleague D. Anderson in a Thanksgiving devotional address he delivered in this building in 1985. He reported that at a time when he worked at the church office building in Salt Lake, he frequently found himself arriving at the parking lot at about the same time with another individual whom he had admired for many years, but to whom he had never been able to express his feelings of admiration and gratitude. In Brother Anderson's words, each time I entered the building and climbed on the elevator together, I found myself tongue-tied. I could hardly stammer, good morning, much less, oh, how I admire you, or... Thank you for all you've done and are doing for me. Think about it. You've had the same experience. Finally, Brother Anderson, in his words, quote, took a pen in hand and in longhand wrote a short note that expressed his feelings. A few days later, he received the following response. Dear D, that was one of the sweetest notes I've ever received, and I appreciate hearing from you. I am indeed grateful to be so close to you, and I hope that we may see each other once in a while. May the Lord bless you and assist you in all your efforts 
with kindest wishes, faithfully yours. And whose signature do you think was at the bottom of that note? We all recognize the name. Spencer W. Kimball. He concludes, Oh, how President Kimball blessed my life because I took the time and had the courage to say thank you. These, then, are the two steps that I offer as a formula for adding the noble virtue of gratitude to our individual inventory of personal moral strengths. First, we recognize the problem, and then we take affirmative steps to do something about it. Those are very simple steps to state. And at an abstract level, they're also very easy to understand. But as experiences from the days of the ten lepers down to D. Anderson's time demonstrate, neither is easy to accomplish. In conclusion, then, let me set the example and begin personally, right now, to practice what I have today been preaching and express a few things for which I'm grateful. I'm thankful for my family. With each passing year, I grow more aware of just how important they are to me. Grateful that most of them are here today. Let me tell you something that happened just a few weeks ago. It sounds like a very simple thing. I hope I can express adequately how it affected me. It was a Sunday afternoon, and following dinner, instead of reading the scriptures in the usual way, we just went around the table, and from the oldest down to the youngest, in including one of the grandchildren, asked each to read his or her favorite scripture and then make a brief comment as to why it was a favorite. It was a completely ordinary experience. And yet as I listened to them, and particularly to their expressions of why that particular scripture meant so much to them, my gratitude intensified for family members who not only understand the scriptures, but are committed to the eternal principles for which they stand. Nothing in this world, I think, brings quite the same joy as do loving family members who share common values, common understanding, and common devotion. I'm grateful for Brigham Young University. I appreciate the superb undergraduate preparation that I received here as a student. Preparation for law school, preparation for life an atmosphere that builds great faith at the same time it stimulates the mind. I'm grateful to the faithful tithe payers around the world whose contributions provide for about 70% of the cost of this unique education. It was true during my day and is true during yours. Among my list of things for which I'm grateful, this one is easy to overlook, and so I deliberately remind myself of it from time to time. I'm also grateful to the students of your generation, for each of you, individually, and for some of your groups. I was reminded of that again this morning. I'm grateful for our touring groups, for our athletic teams, for such magnificent performances as our volleyball team, our women's volleyball team has recently had. I remember the great surge of emotion leading even to tears that I experienced last April conference when the combined choirs announced as the BYU choirs sang in general conference. I'm grateful for the loyalty, the competence, 
the encouragement and the love that I enjoy from my professional colleagues at BYU, including the members of the President's Council, every single person who is seated on the stand today, the faculty and staff, and my two colleagues with whom I work on a daily basis, Janet Calder and Jan Nelson. I'm grateful that in my present employment, as in none other that I've ever had in my life, Janet is also a professional colleague in many significant ways. In addition to the enjoyable aspects of that fact, she is quite simply very good at what she does, all the way from giving devotional talks to raising money, formulating and implementing new ideas, serving on committees, and hosting. And for that competence and that devotion, I am also grateful. I'm grateful for little things, things like food, water, clothes, and a warm house, and the fact that unlike so many people in the world and also unlike some of my ancestors, I've never been deprived of any of those. I'm grateful that for 55 years there was no damage to the nerves in my legs, and I was privileged to participate in the many joys that healthy legs can bring. I'm also grateful for life itself, for the fact that being relegated now to walking rather than running appears to be my most serious health challenge. Brothers and sisters, the business of BYU is education. We have come here to learn. The education for which we strive here reaches a broader range of learning than at other universities. Let me challenge each of us to make a conscious effort to include within that broader range of things to be learned at BYU an increase in our determination to practice gratitude, to enhance our appreciation for other people and for abundant blessings. May we deliberately strive to be more like D. Anderson on the day he wrote that note to President Kimball more like the one leper who came back to say thank you, less like the nine who did not, and less like the pretzel merchant whose only response was that the price had gone up for pretzels she did not supply. It will not be easy. Quite simply, for most of us, gratitude is not something that develops naturally. It takes effort. But as prophets, both ancient and modern, have reminded us, expenditure of that effort is worthwhile because we are dealing with one of the most important of all human virtues and one of the most common of all human deficiencies. And may we remember, as Paul reminded Timothy, gratitude is tantamount to holiness, so that when we enlarge our capacity for gratitude, we are also enriching our entire souls. Be conscious of people and circumstances all around you family members, roommates, professors, classmates, and others who are really deserving of your gratitude, and then buck up your courage enough to tell them how you feel. That we may extend that positive effort is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Recognizing the Lord in All Things. We've just heard from Rex E. Lee. After the break, we'll return with Paris K. Egbert for Confess the Lord's Hand in All Things. 
This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is recognizing the Lord in all things. Next is Paris K. Egbert, chair of the Computer Science Department at BYU at the time of this address, titled Confess the Lord's Hand in All Things. We live in an exciting time. Never in the history of the earth has our Heavenly Father given so much to His children. I fear that with our abundance of luxuries, our automobiles and cell phones, our video games and GPS navigation systems, our lives of plenty and ease, we sometimes forget to confess the Lord's hand in all things. Let me give just a small glimpse of how truly blessed we are. President Spencer W. Kimball was the president of the Church for much of the time I was growing up. He was an incredible man who had a great vision of the future of the Church. In an address he gave in 1974, he said, quote, I believe that the Lord is anxious to put into our hands inventions of which we laymen have hardly had a glimpse. I remember as a young man hearing this statement and wondering what the Lord had in store for us. President Kimball's statement of us hardly having a glimpse was more accurate than I imagined. As I look at where technology has gone since that time, I am absolutely amazed. Let's take a look at some of the ways in which this prophecy has been and is being fulfilled. From the days of Adam until 1805, relatively few technological innovations occurred. We did have the wheel, gunpowder, the abacus, and the printing press. But other than a few innovations such as these, people living in 1805 really didn't live all that differently from those who lived thousands of years before them. During Joseph Smith's time, there were no cell phones and, in fact, no phones at all. During his lifetime, modern matches would be invented, as would the typewriter, the sewing machine, the telegraph, and, later in his life, the bicycle. Travel was mainly done on foot, horse, carriage, or boat. Music was played by live bands. There were no electronic computers, but Charles Babbage did invent a mechanical calculator during this time frame. Medicine was still very primitive. The stethoscope was invented a few years after Joseph's birth, and vaccines wouldn't become available for another 40 years or so. Now, let's skip forward a few years. My grandfather, Archibald Egbert, was born in West Jordan, Utah in 1889, about 45 years after the death of the prophet Joseph. There were still no cell phones, but Alexander Graham Bell had invented the standard telephone just 13 years prior to my grandfather's birth. Music was still mainly played by live bands, but the phonograph had been invented and was gaining popularity. There were no computers, but about the time of my grandfather's birth, Herman Hollerith created the tabulating machine, which read punched cards to process data. This machine was actually used in the 1890 census and was a huge success. The light bulb had just been invented, and X-rays had recently been discovered. The first automobile, powered by an internal combustion engine, hit the road just four years prior to my grandfather's birth. Humans wouldn't set foot on the North Pole until 20 years later. Now let's move forward to my father's birth. My father was born about 47 years after my grandfather Archibald was born. There still were no cell phones, but rather than having to crank the telephone box, Telephones were now enclosed in their own case 
with a rotary dial and headset connected to the main body of the phone. Music was played on the radio or on 78 RPM records. Mechanical calculators had been invented that could add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and the world's first electronic digital computer, the Atanasoft Berry computer, was developed shortly after my father was born. Penicillin had been developed, as well as vaccines for diphtheria, pertussis, tuberculosis, tetanus, and yellow fever. Automobiles were now commonplace, and airplane travel was gaining in popularity. The Ford Model A went into production a few years prior to my father's birth, and eventually four million Model A's were produced. The ballpoint pen had been invented, but cake mixes wouldn't become available for several more years. By the time I was born, and contrary to my kids' belief, it wasn't that long ago, there were still no cell phones. But touchtone telephones had been developed. You no longer had to use the rotary dial and listen to the click, 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 click as you dialed. Music was played on records or eight-track tapes. Transistors had replaced vacuum tubes. The integrated circuit had been developed, and computers were gaining a lot of attention. The IBM 360 was introduced about this time. It weighed 2,000 pounds, cost $4 million in 2011 dollars, and could store about 2,500 bytes of data. The notion of a personal computer was still science fiction. Automobile technology had advanced some, airplane travel was commonplace, and we were about to experience the first man setting foot on the moon. Pacemakers had been invented, the structure of DNA had been discovered, and vaccines for typhus, influenza, and polio had been developed. We were also introduced to McDonald's, the Barbie doll, and the hula hoop. Now skip forward a few more years. My oldest son was born in 1984. Cell phones had finally been invented. <laughs> However, nobody had them. It was hard to fit them in your pocket. There were no cute covers for them. And the selection of available ringtones was abysmal. <laughs> Music was played on cassette tapes or on newly invented CDs. The IBM PC had just been developed. The low-end version contained 16 kilobytes of RAM, that's 16,000 bytes, and storage was provided via 180-kilobyte floppy disks. At this point, computers started taking over our normal lives, being used in automobiles, dishwashers, hotel room door locks, and most other electronic devices. Artificial hearts had been developed and used, and vaccines for measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, and pneumonia had been developed. My oldest son just had his first son a couple of months ago. By this time, smartphones were taking over the world, and our phones had become our calendars, navigation devices, email readers, calculators, web browsers, texting mechanisms, and Angry Birds devices. <laughs> Music was played on iPods, iMacs, iPhones, iPads, iPods, and any other device that you could put an eye in front of were all around us. The human genome had been mapped. Arthroscopic, laparoscopic, and robotic surgeries had dramatically improved the manner in which surgical procedures were performed, and 3D ultrasound, CD, and MRI devices 
allowed doctors to get a good view of the interior of the body prior to surgery. Automobiles were everywhere, and computers were now ubiquitous, with about one billion personal computers in use as of the first part of 2011. Today, you can buy a laptop that contains 32 gigabytes of RAM, comes with a quad-core i7 processor, has a 750 gigabyte hard drive, and you can buy a two terabyte external drive for about $100. Now, I apologize for the computer ease here, but this is exciting stuff. <clears throat> Let me give some comparisons to help try to elucidate this idea. From the time my son was born until now, a period of about 27 years, personal computer processing ability has improved dramatically. Memory has increased by a factor of about 2 million. The 32 gigabytes of main memory in today's laptop can store approximately 8,000 songs. In contrast, the IBM PC of 1984 couldn't store 1,000 songs, or even 100 songs, or even one song. In fact, it couldn't have even stored one-tenth of a song. With the IBM PC's 16 kilobytes of memory, you could have stored only one second of one song. Hopefully that gives some perspective of how far we have advanced. External storage capacities have increased even more dramatically. The two terabyte external drive I mentioned can store about 10 million times as much data as the original floppy disks of the IBM PC. Thus, to get the storage capacity of one of today's external hard drives, you would have needed to buy 10 million floppy disks in 1984. This two terabyte drive can hold about 120,000 songs. If you were to fill that hard drive with those songs and listen to songs day and night, every second of every day, even while you were sleeping, you would hear each song once in a year. I've noticed that some students are apparently attempting this as their earphones <laughs> seem to be another appendage to their body. <clears throat> the amazing thing about this rapid increase in technology is that these trends are continuing. So why do I bring this up? Why the megas, gigas, and teras? To me, this is a wonderful manifestation of the Lord's hand in the progression of his children. Do not all these things testify that God loves us and wants the best for us? Do we recognize the Lord's hand in all things? Johannes Gutenberg invented the first printing press with movable type in the year 1436. Prior to this, scribes painstakingly copied by hand the books or manuscripts they wanted printed. From Gutenberg's time up until 1830, when the Book of Mormon was printed, some improvements were made to the press, but the form and function of the printing press used by Egbert B. Grandin was not much more sophisticated than Gutenberg's. Today, all of the text for the Book of Mormon is stored electronically, and copies can be produced instantaneously. It was recently announced that the 150 millionth copy of the Book of Mormon had been printed, and portions of it are currently available in 107 languages. This advance in technology has made it possible for many more of our Father's children to hear the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, fulfilling the Savior's injunction to, quote, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature would be nigh unto impossible without modern technology. Let me give another example. Through the Urim and Thummim, the Lord showed Abraham some incredible visions. Quote, And I, Abraham, had the Urim and Thummim, and I saw the stars, that they were very great. 
And I, Abraham, talked with the Lord face to face, and he told me of the works which his hands had made. And he put his hand upon mine eyes, and I saw those things which his hands had made, which were many, and they multiplied before mine eyes, and I could not see the end thereof. We don't know all of what Abraham was shown, but it is clear that the Lord provided a wonderful glimpse of his innumerable creations. But has he not given us a similar glimpse? In 1995, NASA controllers decided to point the Hubble Space Telescope at a section of space they thought was fairly empty. Astronomers had studied space for many years and knew where the most visible galaxies and stars were located. They wondered what they would find looking at a part of space where they really hadn't seen much in the past. They took a 10-day exposure during December 1995. If you were to place a coin about 74 feet uh, away from you, that's the area of space that was photographed by the Hubble. The astronomers were amazed at what they saw. The portion of space they photographed contained some 1,500 galaxies. This was astonishing to them. This little section of space that had appeared empty was literally jam-packed with galaxies. Wondering if this was just a fluke, they decided to reposition the Hubble and take a photograph of another spot in space that appeared empty. The Hubble had some upgrades performed on it, and the camera that captured the images was improved. They pointed the Hubble at the desired location and took an 11-day exposure of this area. NASA officials liken the amount of space photographed by the Hubble in this instance to be what you would see if you had an 80-foot-long soda straw that you looked down. I'm not sure where you would find an 80-foot-long soda straw or how you would hold it up there, but you get the idea. The image they obtained was even more stunning than the previous one. In this image, around 10,000 galaxies can be seen of all shapes, sizes, and ages. They estimate that the furthest galaxies that can be seen are several billion light years away from us, give or take a few kilometers. <laughs> now, if you assume that this section of space is representative of all of space and extend these numbers to the entire sphere of space surrounding us, then multiply the total number of galaxies by the estimated 500 billion stars per galaxy, the numbers are absolutely mind-boggling. There truly are worlds without number. So we have Abraham being shown incredible things via the Urim and Thummim, and we have ourselves being shown incredible things via the Hubble Space Telescope. In which of these is the hand of the Lord most plainly manifest? I would suggest that it is in both of them. Alma reminds us that, quote, all things denote there is a God. Yea, even the earth and all things that are upon the face of it, yea, and its motion, yea, and also all the planets which move in their regular form do witness that there is a supreme creator. Alma is a great example of learning to confess the Lord's hand in all things, although in his case it took a rather dramatic experience for him to learn that lesson. After seeing the angel and being called to repentance, Alma was overcome. Finally, after three days of suffering, his repentance was accepted by the Lord, and he regained consciousness. At that point, he gave some interesting insights into this notion of confessing the Lord's hand in our lives. He said, quote, Yea, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess before him. Yea, even at the last day, then shall they confess that he is God. Then shall they confess that the judgment of an everlasting punishment is just upon them, and they shall quake and tremble and shrink beneath the glance of his all-searching eye. 
Thus, we will all eventually confess the Lord's hand in our lives. We can either do it now, the preferred method, or at the last day, when the consequences will be more significant. Let me share a personal experience I had in which the Lord's hand was clearly manifest. Several years ago, I took a trip with my family to Mesa, Arizona. We enjoyed renewing acquaintances, getting caught up on everyone's lives, and spending time in the swimming pool, a necessity on a summer day in Mesa. My four-year-old nephew Ryan was afraid of the water, so his mom spent one morning in the pool with him trying to get him to overcome his fear. During the time he wasn't learning to swim with his mother, my four-year-old son was teaching him how to maneuver himself over the locked fence that protected the swimming pool. After spending some fun time in the pool, we retired to the house to eat and relax. I was enjoying reading a book in the living room. After reading for some time, I took a short break and just sat in the reclining chair, enjoying my time away from work. While I was relaxing, I had the distinct impression that I should go look in the swimming pool. I thought to myself, that's strange. No one is currently swimming in the pool. But fortunately, I followed the prompting and got up out of my chair. I looked out the kitchen window and noticed that there were waves in the pool. The thought again came to me that it was strange for there to be waves in the pool since no one was swimming. I went outside to check things out more closely, and as I went out the door, I could see a small body floating in the pool. I ran to the side of the pool and saw Ryan, a couple feet from the edge of the pool, floating lifeless in the water. I immediately grabbed him, pulled him out of the water, and began administering CPR. Interestingly, about two weeks prior to our trip, I had just completed a Red Cross CPR refresher course offered at my work. After a few breaths into Ryan's lungs, he spit up a significant amount of water and started breathing again. I yelled to some of the kids playing nearby to call 911. They ran in the house and frantically told my wife to call 911. Within a matter of minutes, the paramedics had arrived and started Ryan on oxygen and an IV. Shortly thereafter, a helicopter landed in the street next to the house and whisked Ryan off to the hospital. As a family, we knelt in prayer and asked for the Lord's blessings to be with Ryan. We didn't know at that time what would happen to him. However, after we ended the prayer, a sweet, peaceful spirit settled in upon us. I knew at that time that he would be fine. To all of us present that day, there was no question but what the Lord was with us. Where was the Lord's hand more plainly manifest in this event? Was it the fact that modern medicine had advanced to the point that the doctors and paramedics could treat Ryan such that he would fully recover? Was it the fact that we could fly a large metal object through the air, maneuvering around trees and power lines, land it in a street, and then fly it to the hospital? Or was it the still small voice of the Spirit that made the rest of these miracles possible? I personally see the hand of the Lord in all of these things and have thanked Him numerous times for His loving kindness and mercy in this event. Oftentimes, when things go wrong in people's lives, they ask, Why me, God? I have found myself asking that question relative to this situation. Why me? Why was I blessed with this wonderful experience? Why did the Lord see fit in His infinite wisdom to touch my life with this sweet outpouring of His Spirit. I don't know all of the answers, but as I have contemplated the happenings of that day, 
a couple of things have come to my mind. First, I was available. The other people in the house at that time were preoccupied with making meals, cleaning, etc., and were caught up in doing the chores of this life. The things they were doing were good things, but they were concentrating so much on their work that they were less available to the Spirit. President Boyd K. Packer stated it this way, quote, The Spirit does not get our attention by shouting or shaking us with a heavy hand. Rather, it whispers. It caresses so gently that if we are preoccupied, we may not feel it at all. Secondly, I firmly believe that the Lord, for whatever reason, just simply wanted to share with me one of His tender mercies. I have looked back on this experience many times in my life as a reminder that He truly is there, that He truly does care for me, and that He is genuinely interested in me. This experience has been a foundational spiritual experience that has helped me weather many of the storms of life that I have faced since that day. I don't know all of the answers to why me, but whatever the reasons may be, I am eternally grateful to know that a loving Heavenly Father is there to help us, personally and individually, when we need that help. The miracles of modern medicine hit home again a couple of weeks ago when I took my seven-year-old son into the hospital for an emergency appendectomy. I was amazed that with three small, inch-long incisions, the doctors were able to insert and manipulate their instruments to successfully remove his infected appendix. After the surgery, it was obvious that my son was fine when we got him home from the hospital and he marched around the house singing, Appendectomy, are you doing it? And in the traditional Egbert competitive spirit, one of my other sons greeted him with, Ha ha, I have more appendices than you do. (laughs) Our lives are truly blessed to have the technology the Lord has given us. Recognizing the Lord's hand applies to all aspects of our lives, even to our schooling. When I was a freshman at BYU, my roommate and I registered for several classes together. I was majoring in computer science, and he was majoring in electrical engineering, so our courses of study overlapped significantly. In each of the classes we took together, we made a game of comparing our exam scores after each exam to see who scored higher. As it turned out, in every case, I received a slightly higher score than him. For some reason, this annoyed him. If he scored a 90, I scored a 93. If he scored an 80, I scored an 82. I thought it was hilarious, but he didn't seem to get as big a kick out of it as I did. (laughs) Finally, we had a Book of Mormon exam that I absolutely bombed. I went into the exam unprepared for what was on the exam and came away from the test with a score in the 60s. My roommate scored an 88, if I remember correctly. As you can imagine, I was quite hesitant to share my score with him, But when I did, I pretty much got the reaction I expected. He started hooping and hollering and spent the next two days letting everyone he came in contact with know that he destroyed me on the exam. I ate my humble pie and let him gloat over it. What other choice did I have? Two days later, we attended our Book of Mormon class again. After the song and prayer, the teacher got up and addressed the class. He said that he had thought about the exam he gave and had determined that it really wasn't a fair exam so he was going to completely drop it. (laughs) I maintained my sense of humility and decorum, at least until after class was over, 
and then I could take my turn gloating. I couldn't understand why my roommate couldn't find joy with me in my success. How selfish of him. Now, to be totally honest, I'm not sure exactly where the Lord's hand was in all of this, but I have sure enjoyed reminiscing about this experience many times since that day. The idea of confessing the Lord's hand in all things was poignantly taught to me several years ago by my father. It was one of those teaching moments that he took, and my guess is that he probably has no idea of the effect this small experience had on me. But the lesson he taught has stayed with me throughout my life. Each year growing up, my family would go backpacking in the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming. On this particular trip, my father, my younger brother, and I had enjoyed a beautiful day fishing at one of the Alpine lakes and decided to climb over a ridge and down into another lake a couple of miles away. There had been a significant amount of snow the past winter, and we were there a little earlier in the year than normal, so there was still a fair amount of snow in the higher elevations. After making the climb to the ridge, we looked down and admired the turquoise lake in the valley below us. The problem was that there was a steep 400-foot snow slide between us and the lake. We weren't all that concerned about sliding into the freezing ice-fed water, however, since there was a 50-foot-wide boulder field between the snow slide and the lake. It was made up of automobile-sized boulders that would certainly stop us before we could make it to the water. This was not a lot of consolation, however. Traveling at the speed we would be traveling down the snow slide, we didn't particularly want to meet the boulder field. We decided that we would traverse our way across the snow slide rather than attempting to slide down it. My father told my younger brother to walk right above him so that if he accidentally slipped, my father could stop him. Then we started on our way. About three steps into our traverse, my brother lost his footing, knocked my father's feet out from under him, and the two of them started careening down the snow slide. As they went, they threw all of the equipment they were holding so that they could use their hands to help steer and slow them down. I watched from the top of the snow slide with much anticipation as they got closer and closer to the boulder field. After doing a somersault over one boulder higher up in the snow slide, my father was able to gain control, stop himself, and stop my brother just before they hit the main boulder field. We all took a sigh of relief that they had made it down safely. But now came my dilemma. I was at the top of the snow slide, they were at the bottom, and their equipment was scattered all down the slide. I figured I would just keep traversing the snow slide back and forth, descending gradually, and pick up their equipment on my way down. About three steps into this plan, my feet slipped out from under me and I was on my way down the slide. My trip down the first half of the slide consisted of sticking out a hand or foot every so often to try to grab their fishing rods, backpacks, fishing equipment, etc. that they had strewn along the snow slide. I was actually able to grab all of the gear, which was quite miraculous in and of itself. Then, the second half of the slide, my thoughts turned to panic. I could see my father and brother standing as a bumper pad between me and the boulders. I dug in my boots as best I could to try to slow down. My hands were useless due to the fact that they were full of all of our gear. Eventually, I got myself slowed to a reasonable speed, and my father grabbed me and stopped me just before I got to the boulder field. After making sure that everyone was okay, we took inventory of our situation. To my surprise, I was able to hold on to all of the gear that I had gathered along my way down the snow slide. Then I looked at the only casualty of the day. I had broken my own fishing rod. My immediate thoughts were something along the lines of, 
Oh, great. I nearly sacrificed my life to gather up all their gear, and my fishing rod is the one that gets broken. I don't remember exactly what I said, but I vocalized my anger and frustration to my dad. His response, and this was the lesson, was, Ah, that's okay. You needed a new fishing rod anyway. My next thought was, What? You don't understand. I broke my fishing rod. This is awful. Now how am I going to enjoy the rest of the trip? I didn't vocalize this thought, thankfully. Instead, I paused and thought about the reaction my father just had. His message to me was, Look, you can either be angry or else you can enjoy the rest of the trip. We are all safe, and that is what is important. Breaking a fishing rod is really not a big deal. You can use half a rod the remainder of the trip, or you can use mine and I'll use half a rod. It's just not that important. As I have had disappointing experiences throughout my life, my father's reaction to this situation always comes back to me. Rather than reacting in an angry, negative way, just take the situation for what it is and move on. Do I recognize the Lord's hand in this experience? Absolutely. As disappointing as it first was when I discovered I had broken my fishing rod, the Lord had protected us and had taught me a valuable lesson that has brought me strength throughout my life. I am indeed grateful to my Father and to the Lord for this experience. The Prophet Joseph showed a great example of confessing the Lord's hand in all things and in continually relying on the Lord. About seven and a half years after receiving the revelation I alluded to at the beginning of my talk, Joseph and several of the brethren were held as prisoners in Liberty Jail. The prophet had been faithful throughout his life and had done everything the Lord asked him to do. When he had received commandments, he had obeyed, regardless of the cost. He had seen some of his closest friends betray him and turn against him, and yet he had remained faithful. Still, it had been his lot to live for several months in the most terrible of conditions, suffering hunger, thirst, cold, and other privations. Finally, when the suffering was almost too much to bear, Joseph pleaded with the Lord for understanding. Quote, O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed? And thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. I sense in Joseph's pleadings not anger, but a sincere question that he is asking of his loving Father. The response that the Lord gives him shows that love. Quote, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Know thou, my son that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Joseph never faltered and was an incredible example of confessing the Lord's hand in all things. So why has the Lord given to us the technology and the conveniences he has? What is the purpose of modern technology? Why the automobiles, the airplanes, the computers, the cell phones, and even the texting, Twitter, and Facebook? President Packer stated that, quote, when the servants of the Lord determine to do as He commands, we move ahead. As we proceed, we are joined at the crossroads by those who have been prepared to help us. They come with skills and abilities precisely suited to our needs, 
and we find provisions, information, inventions, help of various kinds set along the way, waiting for us to take them up. It is as though someone knew we would be traveling that way. We see the invisible hand of the Almighty providing for us." End of quote. So in answer to the question, why the advances in technology, there really can be only one answer. For behold, this is my work and my glory, the Lord said to Moses. Not, this is a part of my work and my glory, or this is one facet of my work and my glory, but this is my work and my glory, to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. All he does, all of his efforts, are directed to this end. Thus, the reason the Lord has provided us the technology is so that we can help Him bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of His children. As wonderful as modern technology is, it still pales in comparison to God's power and ability. We get to view the wonders of the universe. He gets to create them. Even with His infinite power, He taketh upon Him the form of man and suffereth both body and spirit for each of us individually. Even though he created worlds without number, he suffered the will of the Father and took upon him the sins of each of us. I thank the Lord for the marvelous creations and inventions around us. We truly live in a blessed day. May each of us recognize the Lord's hand in all we do, and may we use the knowledge, technology, and modern miracles as a mechanism to build the kingdom of God, that as the prophet Joseph pleaded, the kingdom of heaven may come is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Recognizing the Lord in All Things with thoughts from Rex E. Lee and Paris K. Egbert. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.